Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Physical Performance at FC Copenhagen, David Cosgrave. this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode has been a long time coming because I met David back in 2017 when I visited FC Copenhagen. Since then, David has gone on to become Head of Physical Performance and it's a really interesting chat this episode because we've got an Irishman who has worked in England and now is managing and leading in Scandinavia, in Denmark. So that dynamic is really, really interesting and what leads us on nicely is that David is part of the Master of Sport and Directorship at Manchester Metropolitan University. So it is around that that we discuss leadership and management, we discuss philosophy of managing people, using play- seeing players as stakeholders, um, performance role transitions, which David has done very, very well based on his, uh, based on his CV. So a really interesting episode that doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of what David does day to day from a a clinical point of view, but how he manages the team and how his cultural background differs to what goes on in Scandinavia and how he manages that and how he's had to adapt. So a really, really interesting episode coming up with David. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with David Cosgrave. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. This evening I am delighted to welcome David Cosgrave. So welcome to the podcast, mate. 
Hi Rob, uh, I've been waiting for this invite for a long time, so it's uh, seven years and five million listens, so uh, <laughs> thanks for having me, it's kind of, this is a, a big a big moment for me. Uh, you've put me under pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> no, good to, good to have you mate, it's great to have you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a normal podcast intro with background, what, you, you know, what you've done before, what you're currently doing in Copenhagen, and then we'll get into the the meat of the story, which is which is fascinating. Thanks, Rob. Let's see. So uh, I'm now currently the head of physical performance at FC Copenhagen in Denmark. That's uh, Denmark's biggest football club. Um, how I got here uh, seven years ago, uh, Magat came to Fulham, and um, we got relegated, and then there was no jobs left. So um, I was uh, sitting in London waiting for a phone call, and I got a phone call from Stolas Solbakken. So I ended up uh, jumping on a plane, and that was uh, seven seasons, seven seasons ago. So it's been a great experience. Uh, before that, I was born in Dublin and headed to uh, Bournemouth in 1996. So I'm, uh, I've left Ireland a long time ago. Uh, now I'm a European national, I think. Um, and on my journey, let's see, I started off. Um, uh, I worked at Spurs, and then I was at Liverpool, and then I was helping Mark Taylor at Bolton. Ended up at Stoke with Tony Pulis, and then uh, did four years with um, Fulham under some great managers and not so great managers. Um, and now I'm here in Copenhagen. So it's been a great journey. And uh, I recently, my education, I've started the um, Masters in Sports Directorship in um, the MMU. And that's been a really, really interesting journey for me going from a, a practitioner. Uh, entirely focused on individual players when I started uh, to being a performance therapist and trying to support the performance director of Fulham. And then I came over to uh, Denmark to be the head of medical services, got some experience running a department, and now I'm the head of physical performance. So I'm running everything apart from the coaching, uh, working with the doctors, the head coach, working with the analysts uh, in Copenhagen. So it's been an amazing journey so far. But correct me if I'm wrong, but you came through as a therapist? Yeah, I started. Yeah, I graduated. Okay. Are you ready for this? You probably don't know this. No, I don't. I graduated in 2001 from the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic okay. in Bournemouth. So I started off as a like a bone cracker. It was a, what an amazing journey. I think there was only one other guy who's kind of done what I've done, and that's uh, Jean-Pierre Mersman at AC Milan. And he went from being just this chiropractor guy to running the Milan lab. So there's probably not many chiropractors that have gone the full line to running departments, but then actually running the whole uh, performance team in like a top European club. So uh, I'm not a chiropractor anymore. I'm more of a, a leader manager. So, but that was my so, that was my start. So education wise, what what's happened in between coming out of Bournemouth and now? I, I say it's called uh, standing on the shoulders of giants because along the journey I bumped into so many great people that gave me a chance. Like They won't remember, but um, Ali Beatty at Spurs, Rob Price at Liverpool, just even the little things that they let me do and they, they involved me in, that stuff, I, I still remember it. And then going to, uh, to work with Mark Taylor at Bolton and meeting all those great people and then following him to... Um, Fulham and working with a guy called Dave Watson at Stoke. All of these guys, they gave me so much uh, inputs. So I kind of moved from practitioner to manager to leader along that journey. And now it's 20 years. This will be my 20th year. 
but you remember every single thing that you witnessed and you observed from those guys. And of course, Rob Price and Ali Beatty won't remember much, but I remember most of it because that was my first insight to how to lead or how to manage. When you mention, is it Felix Magath? Magath, Magath yeah, the famous, uh, the famous cheese story. I was, you took it right out of my mouth. You yep. killed it. It's real. It's real. Yeah, the cheese story is real. Red give us, give us it. Give us it. I've, I've heard about this. It's absolutely class. Brilliant. Uh, Steve Lewis, the doctor at Brighton, wanted to give Breda Hangland an injection in his knee. Mark Taylor was like, look, doc, give him an injection. He needs this, blah, blah, blah. So Magat was like, we don't give injections unless I say so. And you, what you need to do is you need to make a thing called a poultice. And a poultice is this like weird Irish um, thing where you put cheese or you put some quark, it was called, from Tesco's, under a bandage and you let it heat up. And then the, uh, the swelling will come out of the knee. And then he won't need the injection. So um, Makes complete sense. Complete sense. So Magat <laughs> tells uh, the doc, no, this isn't going to happen. The doc tells one of the physios, Wayne Gill. Wayne Gill tells one of the kit men to go down to Tesco's in uh, New Malden. And they go and get some Polish cheese. They bring it up. They stick it on his knee. Greta goes home to his missus. Her name is Celine. And uh, she's like, what is that smell? And he goes, listen, it, it's it's cheese. And she's like, get that bloody stuff off your knee. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Breda takes it off. He comes in the next day. And the story became famous because Danny Murphy called Breda Hangeland and said, look, I'm on match of the day today. Can I tell the story? And Breda says, fine, tell the story. So Murph tells the story. And then all of a sudden, Magat and the cheese story is added to all the different folklore stories that Magat has, you know, come into the sauna fully dressed, sit there while he stirs a cup of tea. Now, he used to do this to everybody. Maggot had all these little things he would do to psych you out. Now, Maggot gets a hard time because he's actually a really, really nice guy. He's not the toughest guy in the world. He just tests everything and everyone around him to see what their reaction is. So there's a lot of players who will say um, he's not the worst guy, and there's a lot of guys who will say he is the worst guy. But he actually, um, you know, he gets, a, he gets a hard time in the press. He was very, very good to most people at Fulham. So, but he, he obviously got them relegated, which was a problem. But he was a legend as a player. A total legend. I think he played yeah. in the 86 World Cup. Yeah. I think he was yeah. a crazy big enforcer. And yeah, he was, he really was a special man. And uh, I learned a lot about leadership watching him because he was a quiet leader. He didn't say anything. He could, he could stare anybody out and he could take minutes actively being silent trying to freak people out. <laughs> so, funny, but, uh, so yeah, it was a psychology project. Really, really interesting to watch him. And, you know, you can learn something from every leader if you're a follower and you can watch them and see what they're doing, what the plan is. Mark, uh, Mark Hughes didn't say much. Didn't say much. And he was a quiet leader. And like you, you probably read about Ancelotti. He's a quiet leader. Mm. He wrote a book. Mike Ford might have uh, helped get some of that out. And so yeah, there's all these quiet leaders out there who use it as a tool or a technique to just observe. So it's really interesting. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to a couple of people who work with Ancelotti. But yeah, interesting. The dynamic of staff and the movement of staff and all that kind of stuff. Who's involved, who's not particularly involved. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So what, what's, what's taken you down this route of being really inspired by the management and leadership and why is that a route that you've wanted to go because there's people who've come on the podcast and we've spoke about this quite a lot of you get good as a practitioner and all of a sudden there's the, the place to go is okay you can become a manager 
I'm not particularly manager. I quite like the practitioner bit. But well, that's where you're going because that's the normal progression and the potentially leader comes next. But a lot of people would be happy to be that practitioner all the time. So why have you decided that this is the route, route for you? And clearly you've been inspired a lot along the way, not just a snap decision of, okay, I think this is for me. This has clearly been coming for a long time. Yeah, I noticed that sometimes there's a gap left in an organization like an emergent gap for leaders or managers to move into and if an organization creates space for its people to grow as leaders and if it helps them grow as leaders to get experience then someone ultimately has to fill that space because you might have the technical director the sports director and the manager leading from the top and they might be creating strategy but then you have all these guys on the floor who are leading the day-to-day -day interactions, who are what might be called informal leaders, and they might be running the whole shop floor, and they might be totally detached from the manager or the sporting director or the technical director. So what you need is you need somebody to rise up through that system. So they might run a department or they might run um, something for the manager. And what I noticed is that I was good at tasks that the manager needed done. So the more tasks I was good at completing because I was good at process, then he was like, okay, I'd like you to take on more responsibility and I'd like you to manage these things. And ultimately, I wasn't managing things. I was managing people. And then I decided that maybe if people were going to follow me, if I was going to become a real leader, well, then I had to try and invest in myself a little bit. I had to try and figure out you know, would anybody ever follow me? Would people trust me enough to be their spokesman? Would people want me to protect them from the stresses of, you know, big football? Because, you know, we're, I think, 30th in Europe on the coefficient list. So we have a lot of pressure every year to qualify for Europe and have great nights in parking. So there's a huge amount of pressure for the staff. So in effect, what I was doing was I was becoming a buffer. I was trying to translate what the manager wanted, but at the same time manage tasks. And my main task was player availability. So do we have enough players available to play on a Wednesday or a Thursday and a Sunday? And the manager only wanted me to do one thing. He said, look, just manage availability. But then I started managing other things. And then I started influencing other things. So then I sat down with him and I said, look, I think I need to formalize my leadership capability so if i had his blessing i said i would go and do the masters in sports directorship in uh, mmu which is a two-year sports director education but it really formalizes who you are as a leader and helps you understand who you are because ultimately if you don't lead yourself you know if you don't know who you are if you don't have introspection if you're not brave if you don't look for your blind spots will anybody else follow you probably not you know, that's, that's the risk of becoming a leader. You know, all the people that you're meant to support, will they, like, will they support you while you support the manager? Because I'm managing up. I'm trying to support him. He's saying to me, can you make sure that everything else is good? So I said, okay, I'll take on that task. So I became this process task leader man, which I didn't think I would be because I thought I would just be, you know, doing medical services, player availability. But that has really shifted in the last... Uh, 12 months by taking on this education. When I spoke to uh, David Slamman a few weeks ago, one of his criteria, and apparently 
what he'd done, you may have listened to the episode, was go through all the searches that he'd done in terms of recruitment and try to bucket it into the common the common themes that people wanted from a search. And one was leadership slash followership. And yet everyone gets the leadership. But you mentioned there as well the the follower, the followership. What what do you think it is that makes someone what makes a team want to follow a leader and what yeah what characteristics is that person we all get the leadership one we've all experienced that but the followership one is maybe slightly different yeah the followership one is really amazing because there's like four types of follower there's the sheep the guy who basically hides in the corner then there's the passive guy who will accept leadership and followership and just do his thing then you'll have this really, really super, they call it the, the star or the exemplary follower. He will do everything the leader says. And that's when you're supporting your manager and you want to do player availability and you try to translate what the manager means and what he feels after a defeat when you're always protecting him. And then you have the bad side of followership, which is like the alienated, cynical follower. He's the guy who's in the shadows. He's the guy who says, um, excuse my French, but this is shit, that is shit, everything is shit. So you have all these different types of followers in a business. And nobody really, really, really understands that you can't be a leader if you don't have good followers. And if you don't have good followers, it's because you're not trying to understand what they want because they have beliefs. So we talk about in FC Copenhagen, we have an ambition to play with the world's best. Now, we're a small club in Denmark. But we're number 30 on the UEFA coefficient. Our ambition is every year to bring European football to Copenhagen. Now, to do that, collectively, we have to work so hard to make the individuals shine. So we played Man United recently, and we had this little guy called Rasmus Folk. And everything we did was the moment for this little guy, Rasmus Folk, to shine against Man United, and the world media went crazy. Now, that's good followership. We all did that just for him and just for our manager. So if you have good followers, then you're going to have a good leader. Now, if you have bad followers, everybody's going to be whispering. It's because you don't understand what your follower wants. You need to compassionately understand that maybe I don't want to follow you because your beliefs and my expectations are different. So if my beliefs are different because you don't understand me, then maybe my behavior will be different. And if my behavior is different, then, you know, he's bad for culture. You know that one. That therapist is bad for culture. That strength and conditioning coach, he's bad for culture because his behavior is different to everybody else because his expectations are different, because his beliefs are different, because the leader probably didn't try to understand what he wanted. And that comes down to that thing, purpose. Do we all have an aligned purpose? So the purpose at FC Copenhagen, we're all aligned is the ambition to play with the world's best. So to play with the world's best, every physio or strength and conditioning or fitness coach, they have to want to support the individual to play against the world's best. So if you want to just build your brand or build your website or build your blog, there's no place for you at FC Copenhagen because that's not the ambition to play with the world's best. So we make sure that all the followers align with the values of each other. While at the same time, you get to, you know, you get to go to, uh, you know, we have Champions League experience, we have Europa experiences. We all can say in our CV that we had a great time as followers. And ultimately, there has to be one leader. But we're all leaders because we're leading ourselves. 
Interesting. It, 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 the, the cultural fit, again, is one that came up with David, and that was one that, again, he reiterated last night on the um, on the Mastermind where we had him and Des and Chris, that that was the, that was the one that – that was the characteristic, if you can call it that, that is common throughout every single search. It is the most important – cultural fit how do you how do you assess that when and i know you've gone through some recruitment processes relatively recently how do you go about assessing that and ensure that that person is right for the culture and it doesn't get that whisper of that guy is not good for culture yeah so what we did is we tried to make sure that all of our tasks are very specific so if we hire a fitness coach he has very very clear tasks and those tasks will support the ambition to play with the world's best so if we're playing in the Danish Superliga against the team, the peak game demands are completely different playing against Man United in Europe in a quarterfinal. So our fitness coach has to be talented enough to deliver a team that can do both of those things. Now, if we went for culture fit, we would hire a nice Danish guy that has never experienced what it is to play against Man United. But what we had to do here is we had to go for diversity. We had to try and find someone, and I like to call it the chalk and cheese. We have a lot of guys who are chalk, so we had to go and find a guy who's cheese, someone who's completely different, who can be creative and innovate and break down all the barriers that there are by just saying that this is the way to do it. So we knew that he wouldn't be a culture fit. So we went for what we call a culture ad. So because we knew the task was so important to our ambition that if we just went for this guy who'd never worked in the big leagues, then we would have a big, big tr trouble. Because we might say, oh, he's a good lad. He's great to have around the house. He's fantastic. He speaks Danish, and uh, he's a really nice guy. But we went for an English guy, an English guy who had experienced it with Malmo, who was well-schooled at um, Southampton, and who had like had you know worked for Pochettino, and his name was Ben Rosen. And that was a huge, a massive, massive recruitment thing. Uh, because it was a, a big, big, big culture shift for FC Copenhagen to go and find an English guy to work with an Irish guy yeah, inside a Danish football club. So um, we, uh, we, we took a big risk, but he's a talented guy. He's very good at his tasks. He uh, has this innovative, diversified view on how we should uh, train and play. And then, you know, he's honest. He tells us, he said, look, we've reviewed some things about how you guys play. If you want to play against Man United every year, you need to do more of this and this and this. So we made that judgment call, and that's uh, that's how we took a view on culture fit versus culture ad. Interesting. Just to, just to reverse a little bit from you going back to the management management of people, your philosophy, which encompasses how you go about things day to day from the from management of people. And maybe it'd be interesting to get how maybe that's changed and how that is changing based on what you're going through at the minute with the sporting directorship and how you view yourself as that manager. Yes, a manager, but we'll go on to the leadership again in a bit, but the manager? Yeah, to be, to be a good leader, you have to be a good manager. And in the past, a manager managed things. Well, actually, in effect, managers manage people. And if your people aren't in love with the tasks that they're assigned, then they won't want to complete them. So their task motivation will drop through the floor and then you'll get slack outcomes. And because you have slack outcomes, you lose this thing called tack cohesion. And then if you're not good at your task, then you don't want to work with the guy beside you because he's not good at his task. 
then all of a sudden you get a problem with your group, then you get the bad culture, or you get social cohesion problems. So all of these outcomes come from bad management of people. So when I was doing the education in Manchester, we did a review on that, and you know, it goes back to 1900s, and it's a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. So if you basically do your job well, you'll do it better. And it used to be called soldiering on. Guys would just soldier on and do the minimum amount of work for the minimum amount of pay. So what we decided we would do here is we would make guys fall in love with the tasks. So we gave them the opportunity to write up their own roles and their own responsibilities. They were allowed to assign only tasks that they loved to their like roles and responsibilities. And then if you were very talented, so say you were an intern and you were really, really talented at um, counter-movement jumps, you were allowed to leave that whole program, even though you're an intern, because the most talented man will take the task. So there's no hierarchy. So the fitness coach who came in then, he won't turn around and say, oh, look, I'm head fitness coach. I'm in charge of this. Because I will say, well, actually, the talented guy is allowed to do it. So we created um, this mastery, autonomy, and uh, you know this true purpose that every time you came to work, you were coming to do a task that you loved. And because you love it, you want to execute it. And if that task helps us to play with the world's best, then you can see the, like the, the drip, 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 drip actually going up the chain. So that was really, really rewarding for all the staff. I hope it was because we sit down and we go through their tasks and we say, is there anything on your roles and responsibilities that you don't love? Would you like to pass that job on to someone else because you either find it challenging or you don't like it? Um, and people are allowed shift responsibility based on this. We're managing people and uh, not things. Is this made easier because you're in Denmark? Would this, because the, because the culture over there of how they go about things? And actually, before you answer that, it may be good to get a bit of a brief overview of what it is actually like to, to work over there and the culture that you are within. And then how that, again, the, the first question comes, comes second of, is it actually easier to do it over there? Well, the Nordic countries are amazing because they have this thing called uh, power distance, low, low power distance. And that means that to go from the bottom rung of the ladder to the top rung of the ladder, you can do it in one generation. There's no hierarchy. There's no layers of uh, stratification in society. So you can become whatever you want because the difference from the bottom to the top is so short. Now, that means that people want everything to be fair. So if it's fair, then it's I'm willing to back it. So they think with their heads, not their hearts. So if they can see that a task is worthwhile, then they will invest in it. Now, the trade-off in that is that Danes and Nordic people in particular are very, very, very fond of their family time. So at 3 o'clock, there won't be any staff in the building. Sometimes at 2 o'clock, there won't be any staff in the building because they've all gone home to be with their families. And that might be to pick up the kids or that might be to go to the summer house. Now, the reason they do this is because family is everything. The value of the family is everything. Work is just something that you do. It's a task. So you're very, very good at your task. You execute your task. You support your co-worker, not your boss, because there's a, there's a flat hierarchy. So basically, organizations are just flat. The most talented and skilled person can give his opinion, but also the guy who's new to something can give an opinion. And everybody has to be seen and heard. So they call it consensus orientation. So it will go around a round table and everybody will talk about their feelings on a task or a project. 
and everybody gets hurt. Now, that was really, really difficult, Rob, for me to understand when I came. Because in British football or English football or Irish culture, English culture, there's a very clear stratification in society. There's very, you're working class, you're middle class, you're upper class. Uh, I'm the head of department, you're an intern, uh, this is the hierarchy, I've been in this role for 20 years, you can't have an opinion, why are you talking to the player about this? This is not your job to talk to the player about this. Now that doesn't exist in Denmark. Everybody has open access to give input. So I had to learn that myself. I had to think, what is an Irishman in Denmark doing? And in university, they call that positional reflexivity, which means I have this experience of growing up in Ireland, working in England. How does that make me seem to these Danish people? And when they look at me, do they really get me? So I had to understand that they wanted to go home to their families. They focus on their tasks. Nobody watches the clock. And everybody just executes. You just spend your time, execute, 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 execute. Nobody checks your work. Nobody has to check your work because you love your job and you love your tasks. That's fascinating. So I did, to go back to the first part of your question, is I used that to the benefit of the organization by simply asking all the guys, what do you want to focus on? What are you good at? What would you invest all your time in? Do you have a common purpose that aligns with the organization, with the business, to play with the world's best? So one guy just gave up being a physio and became head of rehab. Brilliant. And Matt Tabiner came over recently, and he's been fantastic. I wanted Matt to show Simon, our physio, who became a rehab head of rehab, what it really looked like to be an expert in rehab. And you could see Simon's eyes. He just went whoosh. And he was just blown away by the fact that this is what real rehab complexity looks like. And that that guy, Simon, who was one of our best uh, one of our best employees, he could easily do this job now for 20 years, which is fire in his heart because he loves the organization and he loves rehab. What happened two years ago is he was having to be a physio, having to be a rehabber, having to travel to games, having to do massages, having to write up reports. So he was doing every task. And now we've been able to unlock all that passion and purpose and mastery inside him by simply aligning him with his real goal and supporting him with education opportunity and you know just saying go outside for six hours and do great rehab he's it's amazing the growth we've seen um with simon so uh, he's like he's star employee number one was simon there when i came over yeah you met simon yeah he was, simon. yeah i did yeah yeah okay he, he just, he, like we let him uh, niche now we some people say don't uh, specialize be a generalist but what we found is that if you're going to be task motivated, if it's going to be task acceptance, task motivation, task cohesion, let the generalist specialize if he if he loves that thing. Because he comes in every morning just madly in love with rehab. And that's fantastic for us, fantastic for me as manager um, of the department. So um, that's that all came from the academic learning in this uh, sports director course. We talked about it before, but I'm guessing no one put on their list urine testing, really mad for urine testing, really mad for filling up bottles, handing out supplements, all that kind of stuff. So how do you how does that all get done? And it's not even though it's not on the list. Yeah. So uh, do you remember the story about in NASA when JFK asked the guy who's sweeping the floor? He says, "What are you doing, sir?" And he goes, "I'm putting a man on the moon." So the guy who's sweeping the floor, he's contributing to the success of the organization. And at Fulham, they called that open and inclusive or a confident custodian of what Fulham meant to be. 
And when I came here, I highlighted that maybe people didn't love doing the shit jobs. So the shit jobs, stacking all the shelves, doing all the testing, cleaning the water bowls. So what I said is that, look, if I'm a servant leader and if I'm doing it and we all take responsibility for it and we dish out all the shit jobs, then the organization itself you know, will grow as a result. Because we can't all just sit there saying, oh, look, I love doing this job, so that's my core role. So we describe it to each other as core role and non-core role. So the associated roles that make culture better, organization better, make your career better, make your, um, make your colleagues better. All those non-core roles are just as important as your core role. That helps build something, collaboration, a culture where, you know, if a guy comes in early and he wasn't traveling at the weekend, that guy will set up the whole building. So when the guys who came in from traveling, they don't have to go around doing shit jobs. So that guy might have gone to his summer house for the weekend. He had the weekend off with his family. So he comes in and he might be a, like a leader and he will just make sure that the place is ready to go. So it's that kind of give and take, being a good colleague, giving someone a good pass. So if you're playing tennis with someone and they just keep on serving aces at you all the time, you don't want to play with that guy anymore. So you sometimes have to send a friendly lob over the net. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with David. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around viewing players as stakeholders, building and changing a culture and performance role transitions, which David has got a lot of experience in. So a fantastic, in my opinion, a fantastic part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Output Sport, a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. So Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid, and reliable athlete assessment. So for the first time ever, you can access metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics, and speed agility, all with the single wearable sensor. So Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. So this technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can also schedule a demo. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile, and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training, and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at AthleteMonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. 
So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. So what, one thing I'm really interested in is, is to dive into this, some of the stuff that you've been putting on LinkedIn that's clearly been influenced by the sporting directorship. But one particular one was uh, players as stakeholders. And you put, uh, I think it was a five or ten slide slide deck that was on there. And there was a bit of information on it, but I'd like to get your first-hand experience of, of, of what you believe that to be and why you put it up there, what it means to you, what it means to you day to day in Copenhagen. So the players, the stakeholders thing on LinkedIn was just um, I wanted to I wanted to put a lens on what it is to be a player and how powerful they are in the culture of your business. Now, not enough people involve the players in discussions on what is good for the organization or where the organization is going. Sometimes leaders sitting in a boardroom create strategy. And then they drop it down through different layers. And then the bottom layer of that is actually the players. So they're not really given a voice during any of the strategic leadership reviews. So what I did is I wanted to try and change the lens on that and look at them as players as high power and high interest. Because you're going to have some players that are really, really interested in the success of the business, the success of their own careers. And they have so much power inside an organization, so much power that they can change the whole footprint of an organization by simply saying something on social media or by giving up on the locker room. I don't think enough people actually understand that they are high power and high interest stakeholders. Now, other stakeholders who are high power or high interest, that would be a board of director, or that could be the FA, or that could be UEFA, or it could be the government. So we should look at the players as having high power and also high interest inside the organization. Now, to do that, you have to listen to them. You have to see them. You have to understand them. So how do you understand 25 players? Because in a group, in a dressing room, you have, I broke it down into some different groups, and it was just a bit of banter, but you have um, mavericks, guys that just want to do what they want to do. You have terrorists, guys that you know want to take the bus off the road who aren't on board. Then you have the lone player or the, the chronic rehabber, the guy who's not really interested. He doesn't have any power. And then you have all these young players that are going to one day become cultural architects. So they have low power but high interest. Then you have these guys that lead everything for you. And we call them the architects. And I think, uh, let's see, Damien Hughes probably in his book called it the cultural architect. But if you don't have an architect, you don't have foundations. And if you don't have good players in your dressing room, then there's no way you're going to have good culture inside your dressing room. So I mapped out that the cultural architects have high power and high interest. And if you listen to them, if you take them on the journey with you, then you don't actually have to manage 
the players. The players will manage themselves. So you can manage the staff who will influence the players. But if you involve the players at the start of the journey, then they will just influence each other. So that's a really important part of it. So what we did is we did some survey monkeys where we um, engaged them and we asked them three simple questions. What's going well for you? What's not going well for you? What do we as a football club have to fix now? And it was totally anonymous. So every uh, quarter we sit down with the players and we just say, look, hit us with what's going well. So nutrition is great. Our recovery is fantastic. What's going bad? Uh, look, the cryotherapy is terrible. The pitches are awful. Um, what do we need to fix now? Now, that's the key point. The players as stakeholders who are interested in the success of the football club, who want to play with the world's best, who are going on their own journey, maybe who want to go and play in a big five league or who have just finished and come home. Those guys will tell you everything that's on their mind. And then when you action it, they know that you care. They know that they've, and the leadership team, they have trust. And then we create a bond where you wrote to us this list of things that is a problem. We value you as stakeholders. We're on the bus together. We're going in the same direction. And we just fixed all these things. So there's no uh, speed bumps on the road, I call it. And when there's less speed bumps on the road, the players can focus on high-impact activities, which is winning games of football, and not worrying about cryotherapy, not worrying about look, we need another physio, or look, we uh, need to travel back later from uh, European nights and not sleep them well. So all those other things, we fix them, fix them, fix them, and you can call it marginal gains, fixing things, but they're not marginal gains because we ask the players, what should we fix? So then we created a concept which is called see it and fix it. So we all have local ownership of the problems. If a player says there's a problem, we fix it. We don't go, I'm going to tell the manager. I'm going to tell the technical director. I'm going to tell the board of directors. We just fix it. So we were all empowered as staff to fix problems for players. Now, they really, really appreciate it. And during the corona times, um, all of the staff here just went above and beyond. The fitness coach, his name is Anders Storstoff, he went above and beyond. The stuff he did for the players during corona, he engaged them so much that you could just see how happy they felt to work for him. And that, trust was meant to carry us through the season to where we are now and it did help because we surveyed them after like could we have done anything else for you during corona and they were like no like you saved us that engagement was really important so i believe we have a high trust organization where people feel safe to tell the truth that's important because you know the truth can hurt and if they don't tell us the truth then they're going to go into the shadows and if they're in the shadows they can become terrorists and terrorists have high power and low interest. And when they have low interest, you don't have good culture. Culture is finished if you have terrorists in the dressing room. Can you potentially share with us some of the things that they liked and didn't like? Uh, any, any commonalities? Maybe not now, but something in the past that's come up? You know, we have had this love-hate affair with mindfulness, breathing, okay. exploring self-awareness. And we've been trying to promote a culture where we have so much stress in our organization. 15 European games a year, 36 Super League games, all the international games. We're always on planes and trains. But we felt that we needed to help support recovery with focusing on their parasympathetic behaviors, with being in a dark room, breathing, doing some visualization, having hands-on. Uh, having a hands-on yoga breathing instructor who is helping calm down the nervous system. 
Now, half of the players loved it, but the other half, it was just making them more stressed. So we just we just kept on going through this cycle with them. With, Look, can you accept that this helps recovery? And they were like, yeah, I really believe this helps recovery, but it doesn't help me. Now, that goes back to beliefs, expectations, behaviors, and results. I believe this doesn't help me. You're putting me in a room on my recovery when I just want to go home. My behavior is becoming antagonistic to the group. And the results are we have a 50-50 split between I love breathing, I don't like breathing. Now, the Danish society is non-hierarchical. So if one guy says, I don't like breathing, you have to listen to him. You have to give him autonomy. So he will say, I'm not going to go and do the breathing. So we have to accept that. Now, accepting that is difficult when you're running a high-performance program. So that's the hardest bit because then compliance goes down. So if compliance goes down, what's the problem? Now, the problem is that you have to understand the player better. So you go through a cycle of compliance, education. You try and engage them. You try and adapt. And then you try and adopt something that works for them. So ultimately, we had to split it to a, um, a voluntary breathing, a voluntary um, recovery session. And now, because the physical building we're in is not good enough, we've had to bin the whole program, even though we know it helps. So we've had to accept that the physical environment creates problems for our players who then vote with their feet. And they then say to some of the other players that, look, this breathing thing isn't for me, even though we know it helps, even though we know it helps recovery. So as high-performance culture leaders, we've had to accept that the physical environment is damaging our compliance and we've we've pulled it because we want to keep them on board as stakeholders we don't want to say you have to go into this recovery breathing and that wouldn't happen in england there'd be fines guys would be thrown out you'd be dragged into the manager's office saying look i heard you don't like uh, breathing you do it every day so why won't you do it in the dark <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, we've been through it and this is i'm learning how to be a leader i'm learning to accept that guys don't follow everything because it doesn't go with their beliefs so that's so so what so what's it what's happened to the guys that did enjoy it uh, they can have solo sessions so you know what we did is we changed the job management if you go back to uh, like um, you go back to Japanese manufacturing principles, you know, there's a job, action it. Now, if we have to do everybody, you know, then we're creating some type of uh, hierarchical structure where you have to do it. But what we've just done now is break it down into one job, one process, one guy likes it, he can do it. So we had a little group of Spanish guys, six of them. So we just put it on externally for them and they brought their girlfriends. So we created a social cohesion instead of task cohesion. So look, there's many ways to skin a cat, um, but we're not in the business of falling out with people because they're not on board with our program. We have to try and understand them. That's taken a lot of, um, I think, a lot of mental agility for me to coming from England to say, hey, look, you know, I know it's important, but you don't know it's important. Is there anything that, that they said were, was good and they enjoyed and it was something they wanted to continue with? There was a bit of, bit of a surprise to you guys? Uh, they all agreed, Rob, that they would wear wearable technology to improve their recovery. So what during this engagement session, I said, look, this is a bit, um, you know, big brother. If we put a brand on you, it can be any brand, whatever you want to call it, and you wore it for three days after every game so we can assess your recovery, would you accept the invasion of us monitoring you? 
100%, every single one of them came back and said, yes, now that blew my mind because it is silent observation. You are prying inside your athlete's life. And I thought they would all say no. I really felt I would get 0% uptake on that. But they all accepted it. Now, here's the beauty of it. I didn't have an agenda and we haven't started the program and the directors have signed off the budget for the program. But like everybody listening to this, what use is more data if you don't know what to do with it? So we've decided to sit on the program and figure out if we did have a wearable for 24 hours uh, recovery monitoring, what would we do with that information when we get it? So we have a philosophy called measure, monitor, and visualize. We're not able to implement any data yet, Rob, because we don't know just what the data tells us. So we use it to kind of um, give us, tell it, like use it for storytelling. So if we got another batch of data and we don't have um, like a, like random forests of data telling us what each bit means, what's the point in getting 72 hours from every athlete if we're not ready to implement it? So measure, monitor, visualize just means we'd have lots of nice graphs and we would monitor everyone. But right now we have buy-in, but we haven't jumped on it because we don't have an agenda because the players suggested it. Now that was really interesting because they came to us with this idea and we didn't go to them. So now we have a 100% buy-in to monitoring when the time is right. So has there been any questions around, remember that band, remember that brand that we, we spoke about being monitored? Is, is yeah. that anything happened with that yet, Dave? Is there any of them type of questions from players? Um, yeah, because we, we do these feedback sessions every six or eight weeks. When will we do this? When will we do that? And what we decided we would do is we would use... Um, milestones we would get them used to wearing a little bit of technology now we obviously use gps for everything and we have uh, been following the players for a long time but now we have them wearing a garment on certain things and apple watch on certain things and we're seeing what the compliance is like and then we're seeing how many of them have lost so 25 uh, percent of them have lost their watch already <laughs> how, yeah. long, how long have they had them uh six months okay. uh, then of the 25 percent have lost them 100% of them weren't honest at the start. Oh, right. I, I left it in my, I, 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 it's getting charged. It's in the, so we give them little tasks just to see what we're dealing with. And then we sit down and we review it and we say, okay, these guys have lost it. This guy's not using it. But we have a group who are mega, mega compliant. Now that's 50% done. Now what we have to do is we have to engage the 50% who aren't on board. So we have to, uh, it's called change management. We have to make them aware of it. Then we have to see if they have a desire to do it. Then we have to give them the knowledge of why they will do it. And then we have to give them the ability to do it all the time. And then we have to give them uh, like communication of why it's good for them. That's called ADCAR. And that's just a change management technique. But 50% are on board. We don't have to worry about them. Now. The other 50%, we give them milestones. We stole something from um, Spotify. It's called a sprint. If, if you sprint and you reach the first milestone or first hurdle, you know, that's very important. But if you only measure the success of your task once and it fails, then you're in trouble because then you think, well, this was a terrible project and I don't want to do a project like this again. But if you're realistic and you launch little parts of your project all the time, then you're going to be a success at the end because you're realistically, you can't get 100% of the people to do everything 100% of the time. So that's been an insight. Mm, interesting. I'm just conscious that, there are people listening who are undergraduates or master's degree students or assistants in a 
League One club or Championship club or rugby club or whatever that may be. This what we're talking about or what you're talking about here isn't just for the higher end practitioners. This is this is can, this can filter down whoever you are because, like you said right at the start, you're leading yourself, you're managing yourself. This is all um, applicable to to everyone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You have to know who you are, first of all, Rob. I had to do a massive amount of introspection. I met a great guy, and people should write this down. His name is Craig White. Craig White is famous. Craig White is famous for helping high-performance people understand the pressures that they're under and trying to become authentic practitioners. So I spent two years learning how to be the authentic version of myself. Uh, He helped me understand uh, all the blind spots that I had. Then he asked me to, you know, create the version of yourself that you would believe in. That's a massive amount of introspection. You have to be really, really critical of all the gaps you have in your own personality, all the flaws you have in your character, all the mistakes you made in the past. And that internal and external view of who you are allows you to ultimately say, look, warts and all, vulnerabilities and all, skill gaps that I have, this is who I am. Well, I know who I am, and this is how I'm going to lead. Now, you're not leading people. You're leading yourself. And if you lead yourself, then other people might think, oh, well, look, this guy seems like he's a fair, values-based leader. I think I'll follow his lead because my purpose and my identity seem very similar to his. And my uh, purpose and my identity is very much um, aligned with the organization I work for. Now, does that mean when I go and work for another organization one day that I will change? Well, maybe I just go and work for an organization that's just like me. So we don't know. We'll see what happens. But I'm very, very happy that I've been able to do that introspection. As painful as it was, uh, Craig White has probably helped so many people in the high-performance um, sphere understand themselves. He was a rugby, um, he was a famous rugby um, sports scientist. And I'm mm. sure you know a few guys who yeah, work for him. He's the best. Yeah. Yeah. So any any things that you can share with us that were gaps that you wouldn't mind voicing here and now that you it was maybe painful to bring up that you did have a, a gap somewhere but you could potentially uh, communicate that? Yeah, totally. I'm a crazy mad Irishman. <laughs> Positionally, when you put a crazy mad Irishman in a reserved Scandinavian country, you know, that's just a recipe for disaster because if I'm outspoken, they are quiet. If I'm direct, then they are passive. If I am with my experience in England saying this is the way to do it, while well, they are, no, we need to have consensus and we all have to discuss that. But we live in a pressured environment where you have to make decisions. So I would say, hey, look, I'm the head of medical services. I have to make this decision. There's a game tomorrow. Oh, yeah, but I'm not too sure if you've heard and seen us all. So I had to go through all those deep, deep, deep character things that I've brought with me on my journey of how to make decisions and maybe think I have to include other people along on the journey to ask them if they want to make uh, if they want to be part, a stakeholder in making the decision. So that was um, one of the great uh, learnings from looking inside. And then the second thing was, do I trust myself to lead people and to protect them in a high-pressure environment like you know, playing in a European football club? It's really, really, really high pressure here. And uh, the staff 
they didn't sign up for the high pressure. They signed up for the task. So do they trust me to protect them? And does the manager trust me to deflect his anxiety, pressure, or stress from the staff? So then I had to ask myself, am I worth someone's trust? Now, that was really, that was really, really difficult. Because then I had to try and understand, am I actually trustworthy? And what are my values? Who am I? So that was a, that was a great learning experience. Um, but I, I only have Craig White to thank me for that. Because I, there was no way I could have found my way to leadership without his help. So he showed me the way. He, he created the framework, the scaffolding for me to fill in the gaps. So, um, yeah, someone should definitely try and, um, if they're interested in the leadership journey, try and track down Craig. Mm. It's, it sounds like the, the move to Copenhagen has been a, an incredible one. And I know the answer to this question already, but would you recommend coaches from the UK seek out opportunities in Scandinavia or anywhere in the world, but particularly where you are? I think um, I think people have to start looking outside um, the static systems that are put in front of them in in England, in Britain in particular. If you're a strength conditioning coach, um, you know, or an intern, or if you're a young coach, it's very difficult to move through the organisation to exert some influence. And I think most people just want to know that they can exert some influence on something that they're passionate about. But what if everything is a roadblock? What if you're the guy that can't get a job? What if you're the guy that has to do a master's? What if you're the guy who knows he can problem solve for a leader, but he can't get in front of that leader? In Scandinavia, that's different. Because if you're the most talented guy, you're going to be given the task. So there's nobody in the way. But as long as you don't um, decide that you're the best at every task, and if you bring your, your British, Irish, Australian, American ego with you to Scandinavia, these people, they think with their heads. They don't think with their hearts. So you might be the best guy in the world and you might have a great story about Rory Delap throwing the ball like a javelin. But they really don't care, Rob. They don't, they have no, they don't care what you've done before. So if, you're a Scan, if you come to Scandinavia, you, you, you pack two bags. One bag is your ego and you leave it in England. And the other one is curiosity. And you take that bag with you and then you accept everything you uh, see on that journey is new to you. Because even though we're the same, we're totally different. Everything is new. All the traditions they have is completely different. And they speak perfect English, but they love it when you uh, when you learn the language. And hands up, I've not learned the language. I say I listen. I listen in a Danish. My girlfriend is not happy with that. Um, but you know, you have to come here with an open mind. There's a great guy in FC Norsham called Tom Vernon. I don't know if you heard about him, but he's brought authentic leadership of values-based leadership and he's taken over a football club here called FC Northland and he has a great project in Africa called the Right to Dream Academy. Yes. And Tom Vernon has come to Denmark and he has brought nothing but value-based leadership. There is not one bit of ego. He worked at Man United, got some big investors, had the academy in, in, in Ghana and he's bought a football club here and he's producing some of the best footballers in Denmark some of the greatest footballers coming out of Africa. But he has brought values, authenticity, leadership that nobody in Denmark has been able to do. Now, Tom could have gone anywhere in the world, but Tom chose uh, Denmark. Maybe Denmark chose Tom because he's doing such a good job at what he does. So um, there's loads of guys sitting in, um, in England, like Graham Potter, who came 
um, Mark Dempsey, there's Ben Rosen, um, there's some guys in Norway. Uh, we have a couple of American ownership models here in Scandinavia and Denmark. These guys have come to Denmark because you can do whatever you want to do in Scandinavia. They are so open to guys coming. As long as the ego bag has been left behind, uh, you would want to go home straight away if you brought your ego. It just wouldn't work for you. Unbelievable. Thank you very much. No, it's, it's been it's been class to, to, to speak to you. I know we, we met over over there, but it's been uh, it's been a long time coming. It's great to see the, the journey unfold. It's been great. But you, you, your girlfriend is Danish as well? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And you, you learn the language? Do you want to uh, learn the language? Is that on the horizon or not? Yeah, I suppose I have to learn the language. And we just had a we just had a baby daughter, so uh, I'll be I'll be talking to her and uh, I'll be talking to her in Danish. And I'm sure anybody who's listening to this podcast now, Rob, will just be laughing at me saying that I'm going to have to learn Danish when I've been here for seven seasons. <laughs> but the the beauty of the thing is that um, everybody speaks English in um, in Denmark. FC Copenhagen sees itself as an international football club doing business on the international markets. So all business is conducted in English. Uh, we have English staff here. So it's been, um, they've made it too easy for me, too comfortable for me. Um, so uh, I put my hand up and say, uh, when all the guys are listening to this, that my Danish lesson starts tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. But I'd, I'd encourage people to follow you on LinkedIn because you'd put in some interesting stuff on, on there, which is clearly, like I said before, influenced by the, the sporting directorship. But anyone that wants to reach out, have a little chat about life in Copenhagen, potentially opportunities over there and, and transitioning uh, from the UK or anywhere else in the world to Scandinavia, where can people get in touch with you? Drop me a LinkedIn. I think that's the best. And uh, I'm good at getting back. I listened to Kier, the, uh, the strength coach recently. He said, don't contact me. Don't ask me for a coffee. I only want to solidify my good contacts. I want to make sure my network is big. I'm the exact opposite because, you know, so many people helped me on my journey. And I still remember every single thing they, they let me do, every little task or every little insight, every word Mark Taylor said to me at Fulham. I still remember it all. And those things, I think, when you're starting out on your journey or you're halfway on your journey or you're transitioning, people remember those things and it really helps them. So I'm a, I'm a contact me type guy. I will answer back and I will get back to you. But only on LinkedIn because none of my other um, platforms are worth following because uh, I use that for the football leadership side of things. Okay. LinkedIn it is. Perfect. Thank you very much, mate. Stick around. We'll have a little chat after. But um, officially, I will let you go. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate your time. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 326 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with David. This was recorded pre-Christmas, and I've been really, really excited to get this one out because it dives into a lot of topics that have been discussed before, but maybe not for a, not for a while. And we tried to put some, or tried to get David to put some real some real world examples of what he's talking about when it comes to leadership and management so big thanks to hawking dynamics i measure you athlete monitoring omega wave and output sports for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run its current form without these guys so i really appreciate their support but also your support for tuning in to this episode of the podcast so i will chat to you next week got some great guests coming up in the new year and i will speak to you soon